Section 4 of Volume 1B of History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688, by David Hume, Volume 1B, Section 4, Chapter 12, Part 4. It is true, replied the king, I have been somewhat faulty in this particular. I obtruded you, my lord of Canterbury, upon your sea. I was obliged to employ both entreaties and menaces, my lord of Winchester, to have you elected. My proceedings, I confess, were very irregular, my lords of Salisbury and Carlisle, when I raised you from the lowest stations to your present dignities. I am determined henceforth to correct these abuses, and it will also become you, in order to make a thorough reformation, to resign your present benefices, and try to enter again in a more regular and canonical manner. The bishop, surprised at these unexpected sarcasms, replied that the question was not at present how to correct past errors, but to avoid them for the future. The king promised redress both of ecclesiastical and civil grievances and the Parliament, in return, agreed to grant him a supply, a tenth of the ecclesiastical benefices, and a scutage of three marks on each knight's fee. But as they had experienced his frequent breach of promises, they required that he should ratify the great charter in a manner still more authentic and more solemn than any which he had hitherto employed. All the prelates and abbots were assembled. They held burning tapers in their hands. The great charter was read before them, they denounced the sentence of excommunication against every one who should thenceforth violate that fundamental law. They threw their tapers on the ground and exclaimed, May the soul of every one who incurs this sentence so stink and corrupt in hell. The king bore a part in the ceremony and subjoined, So help me God, I will keep all these articles inviolate as I am a man, as I am a Christian, as I am a knight, and as I am a king crowned and anointed. Yet was the tremendous ceremony no sooner finished than his favorites, abusing his weakness, made him return to the same arbitrary and irregular administration, and the reasonable expectations of his people were thus perpetually eluded and disappointed. All these imprudent and illegal measures afforded a pretense to Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, to attempt an innovation in the government, and to wrest the scepter from the feeble and irresolute hand which held it. This nobleman was a younger son of that Simon de Montfort, who had conducted with such valor and renown the crusade against the Albigenses, and who, though he tarnished his famous exploits by cruelty and ambition, had left a name very precious to all the bigots of that age, particularly to the ecclesiastics. A large inheritance in England fell by succession to this family. But as the elder brother enjoyed still more opulent possessions in France, and could not perform fealty to two masters, he transferred his right to Simon, his younger brother, who came over to England, did homage for his lands, and was raised to the dignity of Earl of Leicester. In the year 1238, he espoused Eleanor, dowager of William, Earl of Pembroke, and sister to the king. But the marriage of this princess with a subject and a foreigner, though contracted with Henry's consent, was loudly complained of by the Earl of Cornwall, and all the barons of England, and Leicester was supported against their violence by the king's favor and authority alone. But he had no sooner established himself in his possessions and dignities than he acquired, by insinuation and address, a strong interest with the nation, and gained equally the affections of all orders of men. 
he lost however the friendship of henry from the usual levity and fickleness of that prince he was banished from the court he was recalled he was entrusted with the command of guienne where he did good service and acquired honour he was again disgraced by the king and his banishment from court seemed now final and irrevocable henry called him traitor to his face leicester gave him the lie and told him that if he were not his sovereign he would soon make him repent of that insult yet was this quarrel accommodated either from the good nature or timidity of the king and leicester was again admitted into some degree of favour and authority but as this nobleman who became too great to preserve an entire complacence to henry's humours and to act in subserviency to his other minions he found more advantage in cultivating his interest with the public and in inflaming the general discontents which prevailed against the administration he filled every place with complaints against the infringement of the great charter the acts of violence committed on the people the combination between the pope and the king in their tyranny and extortions henry's neglect of his native subjects and barons and though himself a foreigner he was more loud than any in representing the indignity of submitting to the dominion of foreigners by his hypocritical pretensions to devotion he gained the favour of the zealots and clergy by his seeming concern for public good he acquired the affections of the public and besides the private friendships which he had cultivated with the barons his animosity against the favourites created a union of interests between him and that powerful order a recent quarrel which broke out between leicester and william de valence henry's half-brother and chief favourite brought matters to extremity and determined the former to give full scope to his bold and unbounded ambition which the laws and the king's authority had hitherto with difficulty restrained he secretly called a meeting of the most considerable barons, particularly Humphrey de Bohun, High Constable, Robert Bygood, Earl Marischal, and the Earls of Warwick and Gloucester, men who by their family and possession stood in the first rank of the English nobility. He represented to this company the necessity of reforming the state, and of putting the execution of the laws into other hands than those which had hitherto appeared, from repeated experience, so unfit for the charge with which they were entrusted he exaggerated the oppressions exercised against the lower orders of the state the violations of the barons privileges the continued depredations made on the clergy and in order to aggravate the enormity of this conduct he appealed to the great charter which henry had so often ratified and which was calculated to prevent forever the return of those intolerable grievances he magnified the generosity of their ancestors who at a great expense of blood had extorted that famous concession from the crown but lamented their own degeneracy who allowed so important an advantage once obtained to be wrested from them by a weak prince and by insolent strangers and he insisted that the king's word after so many submissions and fruitless promises on his part could no longer be relied on and that nothing but his absolute inability to violate national privileges could henceforth ensure the regular observance of them these topics which were founded in truth and suited so well the sentiments of the company had the desired effect and the barons embraced a resolution of redressing the public grievances by taking into their own hands the administration of government henry having summoned a parliament in expectation of receiving supplies for his sicilian project the barons appeared in the hall clad in complete armour and with their swords by their side the king on his entry struck with the unusual appearance asked them what was their purpose and whether they pretended to make him their prisoner roger bygod replied in the name of the rest that he was not their prisoner but their sovereign 
that they even intended to grant him large supplies in order to fix his son on the throne of sicily that they only expected some return for this expense and service and that as he had frequently made submissions to the parliament had acknowledged his past errors and had still allowed himself to be carried into the same path which gave them such just reason of complaint he must now yield to more strict regulations and confer authority on those who were able and willing to redress the national grievances henry partly allured by the hopes of supply partly intimidated by the union and martial appearance of the barons agreed to their demand and promised to summon another parliament at oxford in order to digest the new plan of government and to elect the persons who were to be entrusted with the chief authority this parliament which the royalists and even the nation from experience of the confusions that attended its measures afterwards denominated the mad parliament met on the day appointed and as all the barons brought along with them their military vassals and appeared with an armed force the king who had taken no precautions against them was in reality a prisoner in their hands and was obliged to submit to all the terms which they were pleased to impose upon him twelve barons were selected from among the king's ministers twelve more were chosen by parliament to these twenty-four unlimited authority was granted to reform the state and the king himself took an oath that he would maintain whatever ordinances they should think proper to enact for that purpose leicester was at the head of the supreme council to which the legislative power was thus in reality transferred and all their measures were taken by his secret influence and direction their first step bore a specious appearance and seemed well calculated for the end which they professed to be the object of all these innovations they ordered that four knights should be chosen by each county that they should make inquiry into the grievances of which their neighborhood had reason to complain and should attend the ensuing parliament in order to give information to that assembly of the state of their particular counties a nearer approach to our present constitution than had been made by the barons in the reign of king john when the knights were only appointed to meet in their several counties and there to draw up a detail of their grievances meanwhile the twenty-four barons proceeded to enact some regulations as a redress of such grievances as were supposed to be sufficiently notorious they ordered that the three sessions of parliament should be regularly held every year in the months of february june and october that a new sheriff should be annually elected by the votes of the freeholders in each county that the sheriffs should have no power of fining the barons who did not attend their courts or the circuits of the justiciaries that no heirs should be committed to the wardship of foreigners and no castles entrusted to their custody and that no new warrens or forests should be created nor the revenues of any counties or hundreds be let to farm such were the regulations which the twenty-four barons established at oxford for the redress of public grievances but the earl of leicester and his associates having advanced so far to satisfy the nation instead of continuing in this popular course or granting the king that supply which they had promised him immediately provided for the extension and continuance of their own authority they roused anew the popular clamor which had long prevailed against foreigners and they fell with the utmost violence on the king's half-brothers who were supposed to be the authors of all national grievances and whom henry had no longer any power to protect the four brothers sensible of their danger took to flight with an intention of making their escape out of the kingdom they were eagerly pursued by the barons amber one of the brothers who had been elected to the see of winchester took shelter in his episcopal palace and carried the others along with him they were surrounded in that place and threatened to be dragged out by force and to be punished for their crimes and misdemeanors 
and the king, pleading the sacredness of an ecclesiastical sanctuary, was glad to extricate them from this danger by banishing them the kingdom. In this act of violence, as well as in the former usurpations of the barons, the queen and her uncles were thought to have secretly concurred, being jealous of the credit acquired by the brothers, which they found had eclipsed and annihilated their own. But the subsequent proceedings of the twenty-four barons were sufficient to open the eyes of the nation, and to prove their intention of reducing forever both the king and the people under the arbitrary power of a very narrow aristocracy, which must at last have terminated either in anarchy or in a violent usurpation and tyranny. They pretended that they had not yet digested all the regulations necessary for the reformation of the state and for the redress of grievances, and that they must still retain their power till that great purpose were thoroughly effected. In other words, that they must be perpetual governors and must continue to reform till they were pleased to abdicate their authority. They formed an association among themselves and swore that they would stand by each other with their lives and fortunes. They displaced all the chief officers of the crown, the justiciary, the chancellor, the treasurer, and advanced either themselves or their own creatures in their place. Even the offices of the king's household were disposed of at their pleasure. The government of all the castles was put into the hands in whom they found reason to confide, and the whole power of the state being thus transferred to them, they ventured to impose an oath by which all the subjects were obliged to swear, under the penalty of being declared public enemies, that they would obey and execute all the regulations, both known and unknown, of the twenty-four barons, and all this for the greater glory of God, the honor of the church, the service of the king, and the advantage of the kingdom. No one dared to withstand this tyrannical authority. Prince Edward himself, the king's eldest son, a youth of eighteen, who began to give indications of that great and manly spirit which appeared throughout the whole course of his life, was, after making some opposition, constrained to take that oath, which really deposed his father and his family from sovereign authority. Earl Warren was the last person in the kingdom that could be brought to give the confederated barons this mark of submission. But the twenty-four barons, not content with the usurpation of the royal power, introduced an innovation in the constitution of Parliament, which was of the utmost importance. They ordained that this assembly should choose a committee of twelve persons, who should, in the intervals of the sessions, possess the authority of the whole Parliament, and should attend, on a summons, the person of the king in all his motions. But so powerful were these barons that this regulation was also submitted to, the whole government was overthrown or fixed on new foundations, and the monarchy was totally subverted, without its being possible for the king to strike a single stroke in defense of the constitution against the newly elected oligarchy. The report that the king of the Romans intended to pay a visit to England gave alarm to the ruling barons, who dreaded lest the extensive influence and established authority of that prince would be employed to restore the prerogatives of his family and overturn their plan of government. They sent over the Bishop of Worcester, who met him at St. Omar's, asked him in the name of the barons the reason of his journey and how long he intended to stay in England, and insisted that before he entered the kingdom he should swear to observe the regulations established at Oxford. On Richard's refusal to take this oath, they prepared to resist him as a public enemy. 
they fitted out a fleet, assembled an army, and exciting the inveterate prejudices of the people against foreigners, from whom they had suffered so many oppressions, spread the report that Richard, attended by a number of strangers, meant to restore by force the authority of his exiled brothers, and to violate all the securities provided for public liberty. The king of the Romans was at last obliged to submit to the terms required of him. But the barons, in proportion to their continuance in power, began gradually to lose that popularity which had assisted them in obtaining it, and men repined that regulations which were occasionally established for the reformation of the state were likely to become perpetual and to subvert entirely the ancient constitution. They were apprehensive lest the power of the nobles, always oppressive, should now exert itself without control by removing the counterpoise of the crown and their fears were increased by some new edicts of the barons which were plainly calculated to procure to themselves an impunity in all their violences. They appointed that the circuits of the itinerant justices, the sole check on their arbitrary conduct, should be held only once in seven years, and men easily saw that a remedy which returned after such long intervals against an oppressive power which was perpetual would prove totally insignificant and useless. The cry became loud in the nation that the barons should finish their intended regulations. The knights of the shires, who seem now to have been pretty regularly assembled, and sometimes in a separate house, made remonstrances against the slowness of their proceedings. They represented that, though the king had performed all the conditions required of him, the barons had hitherto done nothing for the public good, and had only been careful to promote their own private advantage, and to make inroads on royal authority and they even appealed to Prince Edward and claimed his interposition for the interests of the nation and the reformation of the government. The prince replied that, though it was from constraint and contrary to his private sentiments, he had sworn to maintain the provisions of Oxford. He was determined to observe his oath. But he sent a message to the barons, requiring them to bring their undertaking to a speedy conclusion and fulfill their engagements to the public, Otherwise, he menaced them, that at the expense of his life he would oblige them to do their duty, and would shed the last drop of his blood in promoting the interests and satisfying the just wishes of the nation. The barons, urged by so pressing a necessity, published at last a new code of ordinances for the reformation of the state. But the expectations of the people were extremely disappointed when they found that these consisted only of some trivial alterations in the municipal law, and still more, when the barons pretended that the task was not yet finished, and that they must further prolong their authority in order to bring the work of reformation to the desired period. The current of popularity was now much turned to the side of the crown, and the barons had little to rely on for their support besides the private influence and power of their families, which, though exorbitant, was likely to prove inferior to the combination of king and people. Even this basis of power was daily weakened by their intestine jealousies and animosities, their ancient and inveterate quarrels broke out when they came to share the spoils of the crown, and the rivalship between the earls of Leicester and Gloucester, the chief leaders among them, began to disjoint the whole confederacy. The latter, more moderate in his pretensions, was desirous of stopping or retarding the career of the baron's usurpations, but the former, enraged at the opposition which he met with in his own party, pretended to throw up all concern in English affairs, and he retired into France. The kingdom of France, the only state with which England had any considerable intercourse, was at this time governed by Louis the Ninth, a prince of the most singular character that is to be met with in all the records of history. 
this monarch united to the mean and abject superstition of a monk all the courage and magnanimity of the greatest hero and what may be deemed more extraordinary the justice and integrity of a disinterested patriot the mildness and humanity of an accomplished philosopher so far from taking advantage of the divisions among the english or attempting to expel those dangerous rivals from the provinces which they still possessed in france he had entertained many scruples with regard to the sentence of attainder pronounced against the king's father had even expressed some intention of restoring the other provinces and was only prevented from taking that imprudent resolution by the united remonstrances of his own barons who represented the extreme danger of such a measure and what had a greater influence on louis the justice of punishing by a legal sentence the barbarity and felony of john whenever this prince interposed in english affairs it was always with an intention of composing the differences between the king and his nobility he recommended to both parties every peaceable and reconciling measure and he used all his authority with the earl of leicester his native subject to bend him to a compliance with henry End of section four, chapter twelve, part four. Recording by S. T. Macduff.